In the last chapter that we looked at, chapter 7, we saw some very interesting things happen. We had uh, Ian look at last week about the appointment of a new group of ministers. And they had a very specific job description. And uh, we saw the emergence of new gifts come up at people who could come alongside the apostles and do new lines of ministry. In particular, the first line of of deacons, but also these people were more than just people who waited tables. We find that their skill set was quite uh, diverse and quite wide. And, and uh, we've begun to look at some of those guys. We've been introduced to Stephen, who was one of those seven people who was appointed at that time. And, and uh, we've seen, uh, we're about to be introduced to another one later on today in Philip. But one thing that we learned last week was that there was a bit of a divide in the life of the church. It was an issue of a what we call a Hellenistic divide. The church inherited this division from the Jews they were reaching. The Hebraic Jews that you read about in, in Acts chapter 7. The Hebraic Jews primarily grew up in the Palestine region. They would speak Aramaic with a small smattering of Greek just to get by with the world around them, but not enough to mix or do life with them. That was kind of how the Hebraic influence was. But then we read about the Hellenized Jews, don't we? These were the ones who were living around the rest of the Roman Empire. They had at some time in their history been forced to live outside their native lands. There were dispersions of Jews all around because of their captors and because of their their overlords, their outside rulers. These Jews knew mainly Greek And they only knew a little bit of Aramaic, just enough so they could get by at worship. It's a bit of a divide when you think of it that way. Each background provided a very different lens from which faith was viewed and engaged with. Inside Hebraic in Israel, and particularly with the confines of, of Jerusalem, Law keeping was watched carefully and was only, and it was the only religious and moral stance tolerated in that setting. Everybody was doing and thinking the same thing in Jerusalem and in Judea and and in that sort of um, Hebraic area. You could get very caught up in a very Jewish bubble quite easily the longer you hung around there. This bubble, though, would alienate itself from the Greek world, uh, world setting, the Greek cultures outside their borders. They would speak its own language and it would become very, very comfortable in its own skin. The only influences in that setting was the Old Testament. And of course, Moses led the charge in that. And the rabbis that would congregate and speak into that, and the Sanhedrin and the judges and the rulers, would all be backing up what Moses said. They'd all be talking the same thing. Outside of that, you had lots of new philosophical and intellectual thoughts being added almost daily. In the rest of the Roman Empire... Philosophy was being widely developed all the time and considered and and thought about. There was lots of different things through which an average Jew would have to filter their faith. They They would attempt to be a light to the Gentiles, but they would be working through things that sometimes complemented but often contradicted their standards. And they're trying to find ways of communicating what they believe in that Hellenized world. It was it was no small feat. Around 300 BC, a fully Greek Old Testament started to be translated to help them do that. But if you asked 
the Jews inside Israel, how they felt about that, they would have called the rest of the Jewish world sellouts. They didn't actually like that that was happening. And ironically, the translation started in Alexandria, a town located in which nation? Egypt. So that kind of didn't went against the grain as well. In Acts 7, we read that when it rose up in the church, when those cultures came across and the church inherited those, they acted on those really swiftly and it was great to see. And they acted swiftly because this is because what James calls true religion was being affected. Looking after widows, the orphan. But I've found since then, from time to time, it still raises its head up in Jerusalem. Over the years, the Hebraic way has kind of made us way into churches and we've often seen it play out in what Bible translations to use in church. Hymn wars, what expression we're going to be, things like that. It comes up in a number of different ways and we are very passionate about holding up our Hebraic traditions and language in the church. But at the same time we understand we have a challenge of engaging with a very Hellenized world outside our walls. For the record, I firmly believe the church needs both. I used to go on rants about this stuff and kind of go this us and them sort of mindset. Old school, new school, fight the system, fight tradition. No, no, no. I see space for both expressions in the world of the church. We have two very different philosophies here. We need to understand that. But there is great joy and great blessing when each party in the church can play its vital part. Today's passage, as we go into Acts chapter 8, can actually speak into that a little bit and show how those two groups of people can work together. I love Acts 7 because the very Hebraic church gave power to the Hellenized world, gave power to the Hellenized people by actually raising up Greek-speaking people to take on the diaconate. They were obviously making way for that to happen, and these guys were no slouches. Stephen reset theology in a really powerful way so that they could actually begin looking outside of themselves. And Philip is going to be the next one we're going to read about. So we're going to start reading today from Acts chapter 8. I'm going to start at verse 1, and we'll go through a bit of passage today. Here we go. Verse 1. On that day... A great persecution broke out against the church in Jerusalem, and all except the apostles were scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. Godly men buried Stephen and mourned deeply for him. Then Saul began to destroy the church. Going from house to house, he dragged off both men and women and put them in prison. Those who had been scattered preached the word wherever they went. Philip went down to a city in Samaria and proclaimed the Messiah there. When the crowds heard Philip and saw the signs he performed, they all paid close attention to what he said. With with shrieks, evil spirits came out of many, and many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. So there was great joy in that city. Follow your finger down to verse 12. But when they believed Philip as he proclaimed the good news of the kingdom of God in the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. 
Simon himself believed and was baptized. We'll look at him next week. And he followed Philip everywhere, astonished by the great signs and miracles he saw. When the apostles in Jerusalem heard that Samaria had accepted the word of God, they sent Peter and John to Samaria. When they arrived, they prayed for the new believers there that they might receive the Holy Spirit because the Holy Spirit had not yet come on any of them. They had simply been baptized into the name of the Lord Jesus. Then Peter and John placed their hands on them and they received the Holy Spirit. Okay, let's end there for a second. We read here that the city of Jerusalem has gotten quite chaotic with Saul and the Jewish elders attacking the church. The apostles could hide within the city because they were assimilated to Jerusalem. But it was getting a little bit too hot in the kitchen for Greek-speaking Jews like Stephen and for Philip and these guys, and they had to get out of there. It was time to go, and this leads us to a whole new ministry opportunity about 60 k's up the road in Samaria. Now, while the distance seems short from one place to another, 60 k's, 60 k's was, is actually, even on foot, can take a couple of days' journey. In a car, less than an hour. It's like going from, what, here to Panola? Yeah, just to be sure. Crossing the gulf between the two locations in a Jewish setting was going to be difficult for some. The Samaritan people had a rather complex history. They had a very difficult relationship with the Jewish communities, both north and south. Samaria is located between Galilee to the north and Judea to the south. And there was a lot of strained relationship between the two people groups. I could spend another 10, 15 minutes unfolding that with you, but you'll notice on your notes pages, I've done that for you there. So you can read that in your own time for context. To give you an idea of them, though, just for the sake of, a, of, of those on podcast and just for us to get our head around it now, Samaritans were nominal Jews. When I say nominal, I mean really nominal, loosely associated. The God of Israel was fine, but so was everything else. This is because they had a very big migration influence in their formative years which tolerated and made space for those gods in their midst, those other mindsets in their midst. Many were born into a somewhat Jewish setting, so God was in the picture. But they didn't dismiss other belief systems as they were once called to do. In fact, Samaria had a history of selling out completely to them when the season dictated. There was one time when the Syrian, Syrian forces come against, uh, came against the region they're attacking Judea and they've got their eye on Samaria and they, they are thinking, Syria believes that Judea and Samaria are the same people but the Samaritans go on, well, you're both Jews, you're both worshipping that same God of Israel, what's the story? The Samaritans went, no, 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 we're the children of foreigners. To save their own skins, no, 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 we're not, oh, the Jews, no, 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 we're, 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 we're from foreigners, we're from the Assyrians, you know, they brought us in here. What's that thing on Mount Gerizim? Looks like a temple to God up there. Oh, how about this? Why don't we take the nameplate off it and we'll call it the temple to Jupiter Olympus? How about that? And they did. And for a season, it saved their skins. They sold out their Jewish roots very fast when they had to. 
To these guys, it was a classic case of each to their own. It all works out in the end. And their moral compass was driven by, well, themselves, because no single God was driving that. When we think about this multi-ethnic, multi-deity, worship anything, it all gets there in the end sort of place, does any of that sound familiar? Research conducted by George Barner, he's a church researcher in the States, found that 54% of those surveyed believe that if a person is generally good or does enough good things for others during their life, they will earn a place in heaven, if that exists. In this survey, good was found to be a really subjective term in the eye of the beholder. Last week, we lost a legend of sport, Muhammad Ali. In 2004, before his illness really kicked in, this is what he said. Over the years, my religion has changed and my spirituality has evolved. He was raised Baptist, converted to Islam. We know that. Spirituality is recognizing the divine light that is within us all. It doesn't belong to any particular religion. It belongs to everyone. We all have the same God. We just serve him differently. It doesn't matter whether you're a Muslim, a Christian, or a Jew. When you believe in God, you should believe that all people are part of one family. There's a little bit of Samaritan thinking all around us when you think about it. Sadly, the average Jew was never going to engage with these people to set them straight. The cultural and religious divide between Samaria and Jerusalem seemed to be far too great. The Hebraic Jews of Jerusalem went as far as completely despising them. They couldn't understand where these people were coming from, neither did they want to. If they had to travel from Judea to Galilee, they would add six days' journey to their trip just so they didn't have to set foot on Samaritan soil. But out of Jerusalem came the challenge from Jesus himself to a Jewish people who had become the church. And it says to be his witnesses there in Jerusalem. But eventually, as difficult as it was to consider, someone needed to be his witnesses in Samaria as well. Fortunately, where the Jews couldn't stand up to this, the Jerusalem church did in fact raise up a special breed of ministers who were primed and ready for what lay ahead. They were well trained. They were willing and able to step into completely new environments. And they were happy to present the gospel of Jesus Christ in those settings. First one of those, their first star recruit outside there who made it outside the walls of Jerusalem, is Philip. We'll look at him in five seconds. First, let me suggest this before I go on. We have a Samaria. That's the 34,000 people of our city and immediate local region. There's a lot of global interaction stuff and a lot of different missional mindsets to say, talk about the Judea, then the Samaria, then the other parts of the world. And I, I get what the sentiment is with that. But I've got to be honest with you. The only thing resembling Jerusalem, in my opinion, nowadays in this post-Christian culture 
It's pretty much here. The minute we set outside these doors, there's nothing that looks like Judea out there. We're more like Samaritans out there. We're more, I think the horses bolted on the Jerusalem bit, on the Judea bit. I think it's very Samaritan right outside our door. We need to think about that as we engage with our mission. That will help us. See, when we say Judea, it conjures up a certain mindset that people are more aware of God than we would like to think. They're more aware of Jesus. They know who God is. They've heard about the stories of Jesus vaguely. There's there's familiarity. But it's not as developed as it once was. We should know that, right? It's just not. I sat down with a bunch of kids, random teenagers, at a youth group in Wangaratta, and we started a youth group. And, and our very first Easter together, I sat down and said, what does the Easter story mean to you? What does Jesus mean to you in this setting? And they're gone. We don't know. The Jesus awareness was not there. These are 13, 14-year-old kids. For many Christians today in our city, reaching Samaria can be a hard ask. Studies actually show that most Christians either convert or alienate their friends within the first 12 months of their conversion. I've known a lot of Christians who share how their passion in their early days of their faith was far more fervent for the lost than it is now. It's like we've gone and, you know what, we've, we've, reached, we've gone and just every person we know has heard about Jesus. They know full well what we believe and what we've turned to, what we've turned our heart to and that. But then there's this gap where everything just sort of changes, right? After that time, we tend to keep to our own. We'll continue friends through Facebook and that's about it. And when we start keeping to our own like that, the Hebraic part of us starts to develop. When a church has a good, solid Christian presence, but not many new believers among them, it can form into a almost solely Hebraic expression. Inside Jerusalem, this can be great. Inside our walls, it's safe. It's great. It's wonderful. But there is a risk. The more we get disengaged with the language of outside... The more we speak our own language, the more we become aware of our own internal things, the greater the risk Samaria misses out. But I still sign up to minister in this setting, in a church setting inside Jerusalem, because I see significant value Hebraic Jerusalem brings. You see, God in his sovereignty used the Jerusalem church and the wisdom and insight of its Hebraic believers to raise up the right people for the job. Out of that setting, a young Hellenistic man named Philip emerges as the first evangelist to come out of Jerusalem. If you take the time to study him further, you'll find that he has experience of being a Jew but also being an outsider because of his Greek heritage. He knows what it feels like to be despondent with religion. He can sort of identify with the world outside because they've got their questions and so has he. But he has persevered 
he has found his hope in the church. As Hebraic as it was at times. And the text we've read has shown just how valuable the church has been getting him to witness. The working title of this message is The DNA or the Makeup of an Evangelist. My heart today is to get us all to the place where we as a church think evangelistically because our Samaria awaits. I share this with the knowledge that in reality some of us will be releasers. Some will be trainers. Some will be prayers. And others will be goers. So from this passage, I'm going to present a few insights about four areas of development for any budding evangelist. They're tips that I feel some in this audience right now need to take on. There are clear evangelists in our church, and we're going to take some time to pray and identify with them at the end of this message. They're tips I wish I knew 20 years ago too. But they're tips for all of us as we engage in this thing called evangelism in our city. From this passage, let's look at the makeup of an evangelist. A few simple thoughts. Here we go. First one. An effective evangelist has good theological foundations. How many know presenting the gospel is a bit of a challenge? Particularly the longer you've been in faith. You see, we've got our understanding of Jesus and his salvation And we now have this daunting task of presenting that to a a community that has no idea about the subject, no familiarity at all. Essentially, we're taking something that is Hebraic in nature, seemingly archaic in the eyes of people in the world, seemingly irrelevant, seemingly old school. And we're attempting to communicate that in a Hellenized way. the risk of how much of that gets lost in translation. Because we're trying to translate, will this message get watered down? Will we distort it? Will we look silly because we get stuck on the simplest of questions? Philip received good instruction in Jerusalem. We see here that his training didn't let him down. Philip was solid in his theology and delivered it with fidelity and character. How do I know that? Well, simple. He wasn't pulling an Oprah and preaching about having answers to life. He was preaching the Messiah and the kingdom of God. He didn't come as a guru. He was doing all that he could to elevate and magnify Jesus and not himself in his preaching. And the miracles done were in order to point to God's power and not his own. We even see that when word got down the road to the apostles in Jerusalem, the message was clear to them as well. Samaritans are receiving the word of God, not the words of Philip. It's not a mere crowd forming or people sticking their hand up in ambiguous altar calls, but new deliberate disciples. Philip knew what he knew from his Hebraic instructors, the apostles. He drew on their wisdom and their spirit-led insight. He studied the scriptures himself and he learned and most likely consulted on how to make this stuff plain to his soon-to-be Hellenized audience. 
We learn from the story of the woman at the well that Samaritans were going to have some pretty strong lines of questioning to throw at Philip. I've been involved in a handful of Alpha programs over the years, and I've had times of deep discussion with lots of people who have become interested in what I do and what I stand for. And I've reached a conclusion, friends. People are getting smarter. The questions that come out both then and now are increasingly complex. Today, I get Googled even as I speak. <laughs> Evangelists need to stay on their game and know what they claim to know. 1 Peter 3.15 says, Set Christ apart as Lord in your hearts and always be ready to give an answer to anyone who asks about the hope you possess. See, if you have hope, somebody will ask. What will you say and will it have substance? Second, an evangelist knows how they are supposed to engage with their audience. Philip did two things as he spoke with the Samaritans. We see that he preached and he proclaimed. The Greek word for proclaim is caruso. It means to, have, to be a herald or a public crier. If you've seen movies like Braveheart, you might get the picture. When a king is going to visit a town or send a message, he would not come unannounced, but would send a herald to speak for him before he himself arrived. The disciples took upon themselves the role of heralds on behalf of their Messiah. When Jesus began his ministry, he heralded the kingdom of his father. He said, repent, for the kingdom is at hand. When his disciples began theirs in new towns and new environments, they heralded their Messiah. The Samaritans in their Jewishness looked to the coming of the Messiah as much as any other Jew. The world out there has anticipation too. That somewhere in amongst all this, there must be something out there that is going to take control of things given the way the world is getting. Philip grabbed the crowd by heralding or by announcing his Messiah. If we want to see a city changed and transformed, if we want to see Jesus glorified in a major way, then it is up to us to announce our Messiah. It is up to us to identify with him, to present ourselves as an ambassador for his kingdom. The other Greek word used is the word preach or evangelizo. And we get the word evangelism from this concept. Evangelizo means to bear glad tidings. The gospel message was good news, not news of peril. It was a story of love that saves from sin and death, not a pronouncement of judgment on every filthy sinner we can find. After the teaching of Stephen and his own experience of both religion and church, Philip was very full of good news for the Samaritans. He could finally sort out their theology on which mountain was God's mountain, with the simple answer being neither. It was all about heart and spirit and holy ground wherever a believer stood. He could speak into their despondency at religion by testifying about the acceptance of Christ and the accepting fellowship of believers 
where even Hebraic Jews would consider them family. All that Philip declared was glad tidings. Church, our city also needs evangels. It needs people who can identify with the deep spiritual and physical needs that exist here and speak hope, speak love, grace, good news into those situations. Romans 10.14 says this, How then can they call on the one they have not believed in? How can they believe in the one of whom they have not heard? And how can they hear without someone preaching? Bearing glad tidings, friends. Preaching to them. Third, evangelists need empowerment. Philip's ministry was supported by God-empowered signs and miracles. How many out there realize that we need the Holy Spirit to be front and center of our ministry? Philip was selected because he had a track record in the area of being empowered by the Spirit and having wisdom and character. And all those things were on display as he engaged with the Samaritans. Today, it's more urgent than ever. Than ever. We've got to get a hold of the Holy Spirit and walk in his power. Ephesians 5.18 tells us, Don't get drunk on wine, which leads to debauchery. Instead, be filled with the Spirit. The word there in the Greek is to fill to full measure. The idea is that filling is a perpetual thing. And finally, evangelists need empowerment, sorry, encouragement. And this is designed to come from the sometimes incredibly Hebraic church. Our passage today shows us the appropriate response of a church that releases and celebrates evangelists. Through necessity, Philip has been released and he's been able to reach a new audience in Samaria. Then Peter and John hear and respond to the evangelistic work taking place out there. John's response particularly interests me because it was James and John who offered to call down fire on a Samaritan town because they wouldn't welcome Jesus. You can find that in Luke chapter 9. In his youth, John was an intolerant individual and so was Peter for that matter. Even at this part of the story, Peter hasn't had a famous revelation about ministry outside Israel. There's been no unclean animals. There's been no Cornelius. There's been no sheet and Jesus telling him to eat. But they are told about the warm reception given to Philip and they feel compelled to come and see for themselves. I love this. The mindset of the disciples now is to see the Samaritans saved, not destroyed. It is church leadership who led the way in making the Jerusalem church aware that this people once despised, this people once misunderstood, this people kept at arm's length because they didn't agree with the way they led their life. This people were now brothers and sisters in Christ. They were now to be considered family. The actions of the apostles led the Samaritan Christians to a place of unprecedented fellowship. 
Philip found a bunch of strays that were outside the faith and outside the perceived promise associated with Judaism. And then Peter and John laid their hands on them, extending their ministry onto new Samaritan believers and the gifts of the Holy Spirit that empowered for witness and ministry were now made available in this neighboring nation. Later in Acts, we'll read just how much impact this last act had on the Jewish believers. Philip had indeed led these people to Jesus. Before the apostles arrived, these Samaritans were indeed saved. If they'd gotten run over by a chariot that night, they would have found themselves in the presence of Jesus. They'd been baptized and they'd made a very public confession of their faith in Jesus Christ. And that is about the measure of an evangelist's work. There's a TV show in the 90s that I used to love watching growing up called Seinfeld. You'd all know it. One of the earliest episodes features Jerry Seinfeld uh, getting off a plane, going to a counter to pick up a hire car. And he's obviously booked ahead of time and he's expecting keys. And the lady behind the counter is saying, hang on, I see you're booking on the screen, but we don't have a car for you. And the punchline of that episode centered around the idea that Seinfeld would say, well, you know how to take a booking, but you clearly don't know how to keep a booking. Aren't you in the business of keeping them? In the setting of the church, it was the Hellenistic Philip who took the booking in Samaria, but it was the Hebraic church that kept it. What Samaria and Philip needed from there was a church leadership and a church community who would embrace and further instruct, train and empower the people that Philip brought in. As a result, every believer then plays a part in the discipleship process. There are five key ministry giftings given by Jesus, which are designed to build up the church. The evangelist who gets out there is one of them. The rest of the church community, the apostles, prophets, teachers and pastors, provides the other 80% of the work that needs to be done in their life. I'm about to draw this to a close now. But let me make a few quick points about evangelism. As we study the New Testament, we see that evangelism was everyone's job. This passage alone in the Greek gives the indication that it was just something Christians did. It was infectious. They couldn't help but not do. They couldn't not do this. It wasn't solely done by vocation. It was something every Christian was compelled to do. Some are definitely better at it than others. And this is for good reason. In Ephesians 4.11, we see that evangelists are a gift from Christ himself. And they play a role in building up the church and building and training believers for the task. But also in 1 Timothy, Paul instructs his young protege to do the work of an evangelist. We all have a part to play in this evangelism thing. And when the Lord asks us to give an account for our unsaved neighbor going to a lost eternity, we cannot answer with, 
you didn't give me that gift. It just won't fly. It's all our job. But there is the specific ascension gift of evangelist. And I believe Philip fits that bill, as do a number of people in our own congregation even today. And if that's the case, then we need to be intentional intentional in encouraging the clear evangelists of the church. The ones who have that sort of calling and gifting on their life. We need to identify them. We need to draw passion and skills from them. And we need to be willing to release them. But most importantly, we need to receive the people they bring in. They're going to sound different to us. They'll have a different take on stuff. They will be loud and out there. They will have strong Hellenistic leanings. But if we love them, and if we lay our hands on them, as it were, if we extend our ministry towards them, we will yield a crop of incredibly mature new believers who will be a blessing to the church. As I wind up today, I'm going to get very practical. I'm going to ask our congregation to identify our evangelists. For those on the podcast, this is where our recording stops for now. God bless.